Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Stephen Denny. He's the Managing Director at Denny Leinberger Strategy, and he's the co-author of Unfiltered Marketing. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Good to be here. Delighted to have you. Would you mind giving the audience 60 to 90 seconds on your background, please? I'm the black sheep of my family. I literally, I'm the son, uh, one of two, of a classically trained baritone and a Broadway star who ran, literally ran away from the circus and got an MBA and, and actually got a job in a big company. So my parents were devastated. I spent a a career in, in line marketing, line management at some big household name technology companies like Sony and like Plantronics and things like that. And one day when I'd had enough friend told me that he had a friend who needed help with the PR, quote unquote, which turned out to be he needed everything from naming his company to uh, you know, creating the, the very basis of, of any sort of economic enterprise. So that was my first consulting client. And all of a sudden, 15 years later, here I am with you. Excellent. Thank you for that. So tell me, what is raw and unfiltered marketing? It's interesting. I've had this long-term fascination with the intersection of technology and culture. Once upon a time, 10, yeah, 10 years ago now, I wrote a book called Killing Giants. And Killing Giants was about how smart, nimble companies outmaneuver the giants they face out in the marketplace. It was very ethnographic, very story-driven. And what I felt at that time was the stories were incredibly important. I did my best to get out of the way, let people tell their own stories. and. Over the sweep of time, uh, Paul Leinberger, my, my co-author and my partner in, the, uh, in Denny Leinberger's strategy, was one of my interviews in the first chapter. I'd known him for years. He, he used to be the guy who would come into my office and give us the Roper starch worldwide trend reporting, and I'd be the guy in the front row asking for the slides so I could go show them to Best Buy. And he was kind of my Greek chorus in the beginning of this, of this book set the scene. He's Derek Jacobi on the cliffs of Dover intoning, this is the new normal. And that was was where we sort of got back in touch with one another. He came at this with this wonderful trend framework. I came at this from this very story-driven ethnographic side. And as we both began to do some client work together, because it became very convenient to do so, we realized it would be really smart to actually develop our own trend framework. And all of a sudden, in 2016, we launched our first culture and technology intersection study. And that became a long term. It's been going on for the past four years. We're about to go into the field again. And we didn't have any preconceptions when we began this process. We were asking questions that we derived from killing giants. We had customers and chief marketing officer types who would lean across the table and say, Tell me what you know about brand loyalty. We all have opinions, please. We don't need to wave our hands in the air. Do you have any research about what's changed, what's new? And we would dutifully make a note and say, that's something we should probably do together then. I can give you my opinion, which you explicitly didn't ask for, but this is very important. And that became sort of the basis of what is the future of the brand consumer relationship. What is the future of the digital footprint? How do we communicate? 
peer-to-peer? How do we relate to brands online? What's the future of work? A lot of my consulting work is in the, you know, the unified communications, video collaboration, all of that sort of thing. So it was very natural to fit that one in. The only thing we didn't study was the future of sleep. So I got everything up until that point. And that became the basis for unfiltered marketing. So the real game plan behind the book or the game plan behind the research was probably the more honest way of saying it was, how do we answer these big imponderable questions? In an age of absolute technological immersion, how do we achieve these goals and how is our brain changing as a result of this huge tectonic shift where we're no longer passively sitting on the couch watching television all day long, we have these and we're glued to these and we never put them down and it's how we get our news and how we talk to people. That's where it all began. For listening, that was a phone. So tell me this though, you've got all this noise going on out there and, and all this money being squandered on totally ineffective, interruptive, unwelcome marketing. What on God's earth is going on? Why is it that there is so much money and energy and effort wasted on pointless marketing that no one welcomes, doesn't deliver any value, is contextually irrelevant, and it persists? I mean, why? Well, because in an age of digital distraction, apparently about 90% of the world thinks the answer is to yell louder. What? Exactly. (laughs) I I attended this beautiful confab two years ago where I was invited by this agency to come down into the desert at this impossibly Bond villain-esque site with this gorgeous, you know, everything is beautifully staged and it's an intimate little thing of a hundred of the alpha level digital marketers, digital marketing, you know, companies that buy this stuff, companies that sell this stuff. Right. And, um, and we, Paul and I get up on stage and we present, I think it was like year two of the, of the data and everyone really liked it. And everyone was engaged with it, asking questions. And a lot of the presentations later on referenced back to the data that we shared. And then somewhere midway through the afternoon, I'm listening to all of these A-list vendors talk about their next platform, their next this, their next that. And I turn to Paul and I say, hey, I, I hate to be that guy. But all of this devolves into how can I get your email address? Yeah. And it's going to go to the email address I don't look at. It's going to go into the Gmail or the Hotmail or the AOL address that I need to get the permission to download your poorly yeah. written white paper. <laughs> it really, I just have millions of dollars to say, hey, can I get the email address that you don't look at? And so I can send you something that in all likelihood you will read once. And then, and then those carefully crafted, the carefully crafted avalanche of follow-up email that I'm going to send you will go unread. And that unfortunately is kind of the state of a lot of the industry. So make it's of it what you will. Though. It's even worse. Um, I I had a conversation which was a mirror of a hundred conversations I've had over the last decade yesterday with the VP of sales for a really successful security company. And they've just launched an enterprise product and they're getting a thousand downloads a month. And 800 
are never activated. And then they have 200 that are, then they just switch it on. And only 20 of them actually use it. And of those 20, fewer than six buy. The amount of money and time and effort squandered on interruptive, noisy marketing that is sent to the wrong people, because the people who download a software product are not people with the authority or the budget to buy. Then they've got to try and, of the six that actually do something with it, um, they have to have this internal battle where at an enterprise level, there are now 11 decision makers. Mm-hmm. And you're giving, you're putting your sale in the hands of an engineer or a junior marketing person to try and take that fight to the C-suite and to all the key influencers. This is just crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah, $265 billion a year is squandered on Facebook and Google adverts that get one click or none mm-hmm. every year. That's 4.2 quadrillion adverts. That's the the new direct mail, isn't it? Yeah. Now all they're doing is burning fossil fuels instead of cutting down rainforests. So I interviewed Martin Lindstrom before Christmas, and that was fascinating. And he's obviously somebody who gets down and dirty and gets to speak to real human beings and uh, gets that raw, unfiltered information. Uh, Amy Brown is another one who does something similar, where they run their AI against 10 billion phone calls a year. And they're getting the raw, unfiltered, unscripted feedback from customers. Why is it so important to get that unscripted, unfiltered information? Well, so start at the beginning. The first big macro trend that we pulled out of all of this this massive global data, we called seeking control in an out-of-control world. So first things first, we know that we're living in an age of collapsed trust. Yeah. Don't call it collapsing. It's, it's like saying that I'm, I'm, I have a receding hairline. It's, it's, it's a collapsed <laughs> trust at this point. You and it I share. It's, it's receded back to my back. Exactly. So this is an age of collapsed trust. I'm sitting here today in the U.S., so I don't have to explain myself. <laughs> this is the day after the rebellion in Capitol Hill. Yes. So we no longer trust the institutions around us. But importantly, we, and I, and I say that broadly, because this is not just an American phenomenon. It, it holds true in the, U, in the UK. It holds true in Germany. It holds true in a number of countries around the world that we've studied. We're not willing to leave it at that. We're not willing to sit here moping and saying, I, I wish I trusted you know, the brands I do business with. I wish I trusted all of these institutions. We are taking active steps to wrest back some control of our lives. Yeah. So that key issue of doing everything we can to pull control back in our lives is the mirror of what we as business people need to think about first and foremost. You talk about getting some kind of share of mind or getting some degree of breakthrough out there in this noisy world. The first thing that people want is to have a sense of control. That's extremely uncomfortable for about 99% of the sales, marketing, C-suite people operating in a modern economy today. Why? Because we're supposed to be heroes. We're supposed to have the answers. 
we're absolutely supposed to control all that and dole it out as little bits of largesse to our, our, our thankful, cringing customers. And that's not the way the world works anymore. So, you know, rule number one, it's a cultural kick in the crotch because most companies don't want to do this. You have to push control back into the hands of your customers. You have to let them make the decision, not me. Not a question of me saying, give me your email address and I will, out of my benevolence, give you a white paper. How do I turn this so that my customer has control of the brand experience? Because truthfully, they already do. And the sooner I acknowledge that and put some steps around it and put some structure around it, all of a sudden, they're going to realize I'm listening. So how do you get raw and real? Well, that's step number one. If you don't do that, nothing else happens. Nothing else matters. To build on your point, your brand is defined and determined by your customer. You Mm -hmm. don't control that. It's how they perceive it. Now, you can influence it, but at the end of the day, your customer determines what your brand stands for. And if you are not listening to them, then you're going to fall down because your customers rent your products and services for only so long as they deliver the intended outcome. And if the intended outcome is not being met, they'll drop you like a hot brick and they'll go to your competition. And in this day and age, because they have that phone at the end of their fingertips, they're able to make a very fickle decision very quickly and uh, jump ship. So this is why it's so important, not only to listen, but also to hear what they have to say. You and said something, the very important, very important point that you just raised. In Unfiltered Marketing, I had the chance to interview Anne Bologna, who is the chief strategy officer at Cross Media, which is a big independent media agency in New York, a global presence, all that good stuff. And she discusses at length this concept of the shift to a C to B world not a B2B, not a B2C, it's a C to B, to your point. And I think that's critically important. But anytime someone who isn't quite paying attention hears what you just said, they instantly default to this position of saying, we are not in control of our brand. Therefore, we're going to let our customers define us. And that's fiduciary surrender. It is our job. Yeah, it it is our job to create that stimulus. It is our job to define it and put it out there and then to listen and then to understand what's being said and how the perception is coming across. Are we, in fact, meeting what we thought we thought we knew? And then to react accordingly, because usually it's one way or the other. Usually it's I have defined the brand. It is what's on my website. It is what my PR is shoving out into an unlistening world. And therefore, it's done. No one's listening at all, right? We can look at this in one of two extremes, and 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 clearly we we love extremes because they're 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 out there on the fringe, and, and we can mock them equally. On one side, we have the brand manager who insists that they own everything, and they've defined it all right down to the to the last the last sentence. They're going to shove it out in the world, and it's whatever's on the website and whatever PR is thrusting out there into the world. And those are the brands that aren't listening. And the customers, generally speaking, roll their eyes at best 
and rebel at worst. Now, if we go all the way to the other side, it's the brand that says, oh, I, I read this thing online on Twitter that said my customer is in charge. And therefore, I don't have to do anything. I'll let them define it. And of course, that doesn't work. People are wonderful art critics. They're usually lousy artists. <laughs> so give them, right? It's okay. I mean, em embrace the, the, the truism of that statement. Let them be art critics. It's our job to be artists. That being said, we want to be successful commercial artists. If they don't like the abstract you know, ones with two eyeballs on the side of the head, stop painting them. Start painting things that people want. You know, it's, you know your results may vary. But those extremes need to be identified and then carefully avoided. You have to listen. You have to listen. One of the big lessons I learned interviewing 80-some people writing Killing Giants was these guys who outmaneuvered the giants in their industry did so because they were significantly closer to their market than the giants were. My pal Ron Vopereis came up with this concept about 15, 16 years ago. And uh, he said that attention is a currency. Yeah. Pay attention. And if you're not paying attention, then you're very quickly in overdraft. And mm -hmm. then the credit line runs out. And I, I think one of the most important lessons I've learned, my, or one of my mentors, Mark Galston, has this observation. All human beings want to be heard, to feel felt, and to be understood. Mm -hmm. And the most important part is that people want to know that you feel what they feel. Mm -hmm. Because as creatures of emotion, it's our feelings, it's our emotions that trigger and drive our neural reward system in our brain. Mm -hmm. And that is what defines and determines the decisions that we make to purchase or not purchase, to stay with a brand or to drop it. And the problem is that I think so many, it's the same thing that I see in sales. So many salespeople learn a sales system and they're on rails. And what they don't understand is that the customer doesn't have that system. This is why scripting doesn't work. The customer doesn't have their bit of the script. So when they go off script, then the salesperson gets derailed. And I, I know that in your book, you talk about needing to be unscripted. So let's discuss that. There's a word called being railroaded. Yep. Which refers to Absolutely. what happens when one party is on the rails and the other party is uh, occasionally standing on the tracks and they get, they get railroaded. So you know, the whole concept of unscripted, unfiltered, go back to the first macro trend, seeking control in an out-of-control world, living in, a, in, a, in an age of collapsed trust. If we don't trust what we're being told, second macro trend, the only thing we do trust is ourselves, our own eyes, our own ears, our own judgment. And that means we want to see the raw feed. We want to see the live stream from the street so we can see what's happening ourselves. I don't need someone to tell me what's happening. I need them to get out of the way so I can see what's happening. Now, what's the role of us as business people, salespeople, marketing people? It shifts once again from being the hero in our own story, which goes back to the railroading part, to getting out from in front of the customer 
stopping the zero-sum ego shoving match that so typically happens and standing next to them and saying, let's look at this together. Now, there is a role for us here. We don't need to just disintermediate all the information and let this raw feed wash over us because it becomes noise. It becomes chaos. But it is perfectly okay for us to stand shoulder to shoulder with our customer and say, let me teach you how to interpret the data here. You ever seen the show Live PD? No. Okay. So it's uh, A&E Networks. It's got a global audience now. It's on hiatus at the moment. It is coming back. And it's a cross between a live sporting event and cops. Okay. You've got this studio audience of four or five law enforcement veterans, and they're bringing a live feed from six American cities. So it's absolutely four second delay in case someone's head gets removed or something, but that's the way it is. And we're watching someone have a high speed car chase in Phoenix. And now we're going to shift to El Paso. And in a minute, we're going to go down to Louisiana and we're going to see all of this stuff. And what made the show such a runaway hit in the U.S. is because, again, getting back to, you know, empathy and feeling heard. Rob Chernow, who's the president of programming there, you know, told me when this idea was first presented to him, he said, I didn't think any police department would allow us to film. And what they discovered was everyone they asked said, pick us. (laughs) Everyone said, no, you've got to pick us here in Poughkeepsie because... I need people to see our life and the reality that we go through on a nightly basis, which I found fascinating. Now, as the show progressed over a couple of years, I had a chance to interview him a second time. I said, my God, we we, we talked when this first came out. Now here it is, number one show on cable television in America. And what have you learned? And he said, well, it's it's interesting because people either side with the cops or they side with the criminals. Sometimes they want the criminal to get away, depending on who they are. And it's just self, self-selecting audience here. I wasn't expecting to hear that. But it's this whole idea of, I'm not going to stand in front of the camera and say, kids, don't break the law. I'm going to show you what our life looks like. And I'm going to stand next to you. I'm going to whisper in your ear. Okay, Officer Swanson here is in pursuit of a car in Phoenix, Arizona. And he said, oh, he's just gone through another red light. You know, and that's what they do. Mm -hmm. So the ability to be that point of context where we can teach our customer what they're looking at and give them an idea. Creating experts is so much more powerful than fans. We can all wear the logo, but can we explain the logo? Jim Cook of the Boston Beer Company, Sam Adams Beer, big American success story, has everyone in his company, they have two jobs. So Susie in accounting uh, handles accounts payable during the day. But much like the army, she also has a job in the brewery. And she loads, you know, hops into the into the boiler. And they all have a job at, at the factory, at the brewery, and they all home brew. They're very encouraged to take stuff home and brew their own beer. And I said, you guys make beer. Why do you want your people home brewing? He says, oh, I want them to be able to sit at a, at a barbecue on a Saturday. And when someone pulls out a six pack of beer, 
I want them to be able to quote chapter and verse as to how that beer was made, what makes it interesting, what makes it unique. And the only way they're going to do that is if they can build it from the ground up. The expression he used is, I want them to get it under their fingernails. And I thought that's really quite interesting because I know people who work for massive breweries, the Molson Coors of the world and things like that, or even the Coca-Colas and Pepsis of the world. And you can't show up to a weekend barbecue with a competitor's product or you'll be fired. What a difference in mindset and culture. Absolutely. Can you teach? Can you explain it? Do you know the answer to the five follow-up questions that are coming before the person you're talking to has even formulated them in in your mind? That's really kind of, as Jim says, getting it under your fingernails. So what does in-process mean? In-process, one of those things that makes us part of the process here, brings us in closer to a brand, brings a prospect closer to us, is the closest we can get to co-development. Can I bring you along in the process? Can I make you part of it? Think of the extremes again. On one side, we have Apple over here who, who collects everything up in secrecy and then launches it all out. And we're on the receiving end of it. And we're all, you know, the Vulgate there, receiving the information at once. And if anyone inside leaks the information so much as a minute ahead of time, they, they're instantly beheaded in Cupertino. Or we look at it from a co-development um, standpoint. I had the opportunity to interview Paul Gaudio, who uh, is now the former head of creative for Adidas, or Adidas, I should say, for all of my German friends. And you know, he talked about going to a high school football game on a Friday night, going to and watching street basketball. What are they doing with their shoes? Who are the tastemakers and the cultural icons in a community? And how do I get them involved in a design process? And he spoke everything from musical iconoclasts and influencers, household names that he'll bring into a design studio and do a collaboration with, right down to bringing kids in with their parents. Yeah. And the kids will have basic rudimentary tools of design. Say, what do you like about this? Have you noticed in, in sneaker world, the new trend is to have a zipper on the side, yeah. even though there are laces on the front? Where'd that okay. come from? Where'd that come from? You don't need that. Well, apparently you do because the laces themselves have become a style point. Right. Because people were cutting the shoes themselves. And Paul is looking at this. And he did a previous interview, not mine. He did in, uh, uh, could have been Forbes or something like that. I have to think about it. And he talked about seeing this. And then he saw it online first. He said, what are these people doing with my shoes? They're cutting them. They're high tops, but they're cutting the ankles out on the side. Well, you don't get that if you never leave your design studio. All you get is another set of stripes and colors. So it's that idea of co-development. And from my own experience, I mean, everyone, you know, everyone in the business world has some voice of the customer metric that have to check a box. But when Paul talks about you need to be swimming in the culture, it really makes you see things in a different light. 
Now, that's really, a, you know, it's a fascinating statement to make at a time like this right now. Here we are in the opening moments of 2021. There are no Friday night football games. There are no basketball games because everyone's locked down. Now we move on to an online world. Now we move into a digital setting where social listening has become the only game in town. So again, it comes down to who is closest, who is listening, and what structures have you put in place? What absolute business policies have you instilled in yourself, in your teams, in your company that say it's not good enough to have your opinion? You've got to go out there. You've got to go listen to people, watch people, look at people, observe them. Don't don't just throw questionnaires out into the wind because what they say and what they do are going to be two different things. I recently saw a research report about the effect the pandemic had on sales teams. Mm. And the responses were so clearly delusional. Mm -hmm. You had all these C-suite and VPs coming back and saying how good they were at engaging with the customer and how effective they were and what great processes and what great people they had. But then the results, they have 25% retention rates. They've got massive churn. They've got lack of penetration. And the, the, the level of delusion, when you ask a subjective opinion, you have to observe what people actually do. And this is one of the critical things. And this is why I have a real issue with the marketing profession generally. They don't spend anywhere near enough time out in the field. They don't mm-hmm. spend enough time speaking to customers. They don't spend enough time listening to the unfiltered, uh, raw information coming back from uh, the customer. And this is why there is so much waste in marketing. Full agreement. Full agreement. Complete it's agreement. Stunning. Think of the Adidas example again, because it's, 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 yeah. it's as good an example as we could possibly come up with for this point. No one would ever have come to Adidas corporate and said, you know what's missing? A zipper. No. It's it's never going to be articulated. And yet, this is what people have done themselves. So unless you observe it, it's invisible. So why are they putting the hole in the side of the shoe? Because it's comfortable. (laughs) And because the designers don't design for comfort, they design for looks. Well, this is really interesting. I interviewed Martin Lucas, who is the CEO of Gap in the Matrix. And he's a real sneakerhead, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get the two of you on together because I think okay. there's a really interesting story there. But he was saying one of the problems that car designers have is w- women are often teased for not being able to parallel park. And there's a really good reason for it. Women tend to be shorter than men. And the designers of cars are generally men. Mm. So when they design the car, they don't give enough visibility for women. So they struggle to parallel park. It's a really simple thing. Often, because what most uh, car manufacturers talk about is engine, metal, price. But what car drivers might want is a cup holder with a light. But because they're so fixated on engine metal price, and that's what everyone does, they're missing out on hundreds of millions of dollars a year because they're not paying attention. 
so let's push this into the subject of context, um, because I think context is an area where so many companies really miss the mark. So give me your thoughts on that. Context. Yeah, I think the, um, the A&E example, Live PD is a wonderful example. There's another one that I wrote about in Unfiltered Marketing that I found really intriguing. And that's our friend, Steve Ballmer, formerly of Microsoft, yeah. and his ownership of the LA Clippers basketball team. And he was one of the right. first to engage deep analytics in the game of basketball, hiring analytics company to understand shot probability, understand who needs to have the ball where and when and under what conditions. And they looked at it very much from a, forgive the expression, given the fact that we just talked about the shift to C to B, they looked at it very much from a B to B standpoint. How can my team use this as a competitive advantage? And Balmer, much to his credit, said, you know, this would be fascinating if we could give this to the fans. Mm. So his people put together a product called Court Vision, which I believe is still in beta, but Court Vision is a smartphone-based app that is tied into the infrastructure of the Clippers arena, where they've got access to dozens of camera angles following the game live. And as the player is dribbling down the court, their analytics are following them on screen. And there's an and arrows appears, oh, they're gonna run this offense. And the defense is going to run this defense. And you know what? If they can get the ball to this individual in this spot, he has a 70% chance of scoring. And it's all happening in real time. And it's fascinating because the way, the way Ballmer discusses court vision is, can I bring this higher level of understanding to the average casual fan? and make them expert in the running of our offense and the operation of our defense. And it's like, I find that absolutely, I mean, the, the technology itself is kind of mind blowing, but I find it fascinating from a consumer behavior point of view. Imagine sitting there courtside at a professional basketball game and you got a phone in front of your face and the players are right there. Um, okay, so, so that in and of itself is a little bit, I don't know, it's a statement of modern times, I guess. But to be to have access to that information and the fact that it's real time and it's absolutely happening right now, constantly updated, I think is wonderful. So that's context. There, there are two things that I'd like to address there. Mm -hmm. The first is what is it with Americans and sports statistics? Because you guys seem to be obsessed with the damn things. Are you telling me Brits are not obsessed with 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 sports statistics? I'm shocked. Well, not to the level that you lot are. It, well, maybe not. It, it, it just seems like there's a statistics gene that gets fired off in all sports fans in America. But I think it's I, an well, argument gene more than a statistics well, gene. That, that, we we, we really, need something to fight about. Well, that's really where I was headed because I'm curious about the difference in the type of conversations that Clippers fans have or fans playing the Clippers have on those games compared with games where they don't have that court vision. I think it's, you know, at a very high level, and that's about all I can offer on that subject. From a very high level, 
Balmer is doing with Clippers fans what Jim Cook is doing with Boston Beer Company employees. He's creating a layer of expertise that teaches the casual fan, this is what the low post is. And this is why you have to get the ball to the big man in the low post, because he's got an 80% chance of scoring here versus always going for a three-point shot or what have you. If we can teach people to appreciate the game, whether the game is basketball, whether the game is sneakers, whether the game is beer, they become more passionately involved. And that goes back to co-development. Okay, so let's take this into the context of a B2B sale. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, you're starting to spark an epiphany for me yep. here. How does being able to take the story to the customer and have them then be... Because um, I, I interviewed Mike Adams recently for the podcast as well. And one of the things that he talks about, or the main thing he talks about is story and how you have different types of story. And the story is the thing that the customer remembers and they can then tell to other people. Because I, I think being able to elevate a customer or a prospect's level of expertise and equipping them with the correct story is the real key here. Because if you can do that, then the customer or the prospect becomes your marketing. Is that what we're really talking about here? I think that that's part of it, for sure. I think any time we can engage someone in our process, B2B sales and marketing, I'm working with end users. I'm working with channel partners, not all of them, but many of them. And we are designing a product together and we are ensuring that we have a pricing structure that is advantageous to the channel and is palatable to the end user, given what we're able to achieve. Okay. That's co-development and that engages them in the process. It's pretty hard to say no when I've been involved in it for the last eight months. And I've been attending meetings and giving input and receiving feedback. And we've been debating and arguing and then aligning behind feature sets and pricing and packaging and all of that. Um, so, so that's part of it. That's part of my story as the economic buyer. Mr. Big, I right, think we so should adopt this technology. I've been involved with it for eight months. So that's getting their fingerprints all over it. Right. That's what, um, that's what development. Yeah. That's what Bob Cialdini would call consistency in his principles of persuasion. I have gotten them to say yes voluntarily so many times now that it would be psychologically jarring for them to suddenly defend the fact that they would say no. This is the principle that prospects never argue with their own data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So this is where I think think we're talking about creating a partnership with the customer mm-hmm. and making them the hero of the story. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Making them, making them the hero of their story for sure. And again, that's a story that they can go forth and discuss with their own C-suite. Because if they, if they truly have their fingerprints all over it, essentially that is the uh, ascension of our side over the, the vendor. 
who, you know, was just basically doing our bidding. And of course, the C-suite loves that concept. But the bigger story being, how does my narrative fit into yours? And if I, you know, if I'm able to tell that persuasive story, it's what you're going to remember. It's, it's, it's how we operate sort of the operating system of the brain. Uh, If we had begun this conversation 40 minutes ago or so, whenever we started, and you said, tell me a little bit about yourself, and and I read you a resume of the companies I've worked for, I'm sure it would be lost by now. And no one would remember, uh, not that it would have been important to anyone but me. But what's psychologically stickier? Right. Okay. So we've set the ground rules. Mm -hmm. That First of all, we have to surrender the control whilst also recognizing our responsibility is to create the framework for engagement, ensuring that we're listening, making sure that there is a process, relevance, and context. Now what we have to do is synthesize all of that into a relationship with the customer uh, in a digital landscape where we, uh, we maintain the humanity and we rehumanize the relationship between the customer, the product, and the brand. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. I think that makes tons of sense. The one element that I would add to this is the third macro trend that we talked about in the book. We only talked about three. Because we're seeking control in an out-of-control world, because we're living in this age of collapsing trust, the only thing that we now trust is ourselves, our own eyes, ears, what we can, what we can observe ourselves, what our judgment tells us is true. Because we have this hunger for raw, comes this third element, which we call heroic credibility. And this has been very interesting because this has changed a lot over the four years that we've been studying it. It began as the only messages that really break through are the big, bold, brash ones. And heaven protect you if you take a bold stand and then back down at the first sign of criticism. Because the one thing that we abhor the most is a brand cowardice. Okay, these things are still true to a large extent. But what we found is this idea of brand values alignment has risen to the fore. Now, there's a huge asterisk here. There's a fork in the road that is extraordinarily dangerous for brands and salespeople today. And that is, it's very seductive to attach yourself, your brand, to a big lofty goal, bigger than your brand itself. The problem is, unless that is credible, unless that comes from the core DNA of your company, you will be destroyed in the court of public opinion. And 2020 was a living laboratory of this, (laughs) where we had so many cause du jours come up and so many brands in heartfelt earnest uh, closed door meetings in the C-suite saying, but we have to make a statement, quote unquote. And the fact of the matter is, very few of them had any business opening their mouths at all. Mm-hmm. As Yvonne Chenard, founder of Patagonia, said, the reason so many brands come off as inauthentic is because deep down inside, they're inauthentic, <laughs> unquote. It's true, right? Here we are going through the summer of 2020 with every major American metropolitan area in flames. Yeah. And brands across the board, brands that have no business making these statements, are saying how they stand with Black Lives Matter or whatever it happens to be. 
when in fact they make electronic components and it means nothing. Your company has never made a statement about, uh, about racial inequality before. Now you feel that because the wind is blowing outside in one direction, you will join. And it comes off as inauthentic, obviously. Now, sometimes we just roll our eyes. There is no economic consequence to being a fool in public. Sometimes there is. Whether it comes down to a major U.S. retailer deciding it's going to make a, a bold statement against the Second Amendment in the United States, the, 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 the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and then they lose $250 million at the cash register because every constitution adhering consumer takes their dollars elsewhere. Compare and contrast that with someone like Ivan Shinard. Patagonia is always everyone's best example of this. We wrote about it in Unfiltered Marketing. Uh, my partner, Paul Einberger, interviewed former CEO, now Rose Marcario, and talked about when the company makes a statement like, vote the bastards out, puts it on a tag in the back of their pants. Ostensibly, <laughs> the brand is talking about voting out people who are not making active steps towards uh, climate change remediation. We look at that and say, Yvonne Chouinard's been saying this since 1970-something. Yeah. Uh, he's been just utterly consistent in his messaging. Comes out and says, the president stole your land as it relates to Bears Ears National Park in, in yeah. Utah. And it's like, makes total sense because it is utterly consistent with everything that brand has been saying for what, 50 years now, 40 years, 50 years. I understand. I believe you. It is a complete story. It is on strategy and it rebounds to their greater brand cachet. So this is one of those things that will screw you if you were in the C-suite. You've touched on something really critical here and it's very on vogue at the moment, talking about being authentic. Authenticity is something you cannot fake. And any more than you can fake sincerity for any uh, period of time. And part of the problem here is being authentic is fucking difficult. Really staying on point, on brand, living it, breathing it, making it part of your DNA, making it part of your culture, hiring for it and making decisions, and using your values as a filter, mm -hmm. that really takes courage. And very, very few people in leadership really have that courage. And fewer in marketing and in sales. So the, you know, they'll, they'll go with where, whichever way the wind blows. And I think part of, you know, we, we talk a lot about, uh, on the podcast, we talk a lot about humanizing marketing, humanizing mm -hmm. sales, humanizing management, humanizing leadership. And it really is very, very difficult because it's challenging. It's uncomfortable. And one of my favorite interviews that I've done was with Michael Brody Waite. And one of his four principal tenets is do difficult work. And I think there are too few people willing to go out there and really do difficult work. Being authentic is difficult. Being authentic in leadership is really tough. Being authentic in leadership, let me take it in a different direction here. That's another way of saying, let me disagree. I think being authentic is easy. It's who we are when the camera's off. 
but we've been trained, we've been taught that we can't be. I had an interview once upon a time, back when I was writing Killing Giants, with Robert McKee, screenwriting teacher of such renown in, in Hollywood and elsewhere. And once we had sort of finished the topic, we began to talk about storytelling for the small screen, namely the boardroom. And he, he gave me a wonderful quote. It stuck with me to this day. He said, the board has heard every lie imaginable. These executives get up in front of their boards and they think that it's their job to lie to their board members because the thought of admitting that they are not utterly omnipotent and all-seeing is terrifying to them. And as a result, the board sees right through them and the meeting goes downhill and people get fired because of things like this. When in fact, what is persuasive is the truth. Go back to unscripted. To be able to get up in front of decision makers, board members, whatever it happens to be, and admit that you didn't see something coming is both terrifying and extraordinarily brave, but it's also extraordinarily persuasive. To say you didn't see everything coming, to say we absolutely got knocked on our ass, this was a competitive move, it was an environmental move, whatever happened, we did not foresee. But this is what we did. We got ourselves together, we pulled the team together, and we pulled together a plan, and we've taken three of the 10 steps we think we need to make, and we think we're on the right path. And well, if that story can come out clearly and authentically, you've built a little bit of credibility. This is where, again, a currency that is in very short supply is vulnerability. The Latin root of vulnerable is vulnerabilis. And it means to put yourself in harm's way or make yourself woundable and do it anyway. And one of the things that I instill in all the companies that I'm working with is that failure is not a personality defect. It's just part of the, it's universal. It's part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. Hiding your failures, hiding your mistakes is a punishable or sackable offense. Admitting to them, it takes some courage but then we can learn from it. And what I always want with the, the teams that I build is that people who are willing to throw themselves in with both feet, I, I want them to test the river with both feet. And when they're learning new stuff, I want them to go out and I want them to fail mm -hmm. because that's the way that they're going to learn. But the challenge is that so few are willing to really throw themselves in um, completely. Uh, they're tentative. And you, know, you, you can't be tentative when you're trying out the new stuff. Um, when you're taking a difficult message, when you're taking a stand, having an opinion, go all in. Don't be half-assed about it. Don't be afraid uh, to have people shoot you down. Don't be afraid to be wrong. I think playing it safe is the most dangerous thing that you can do in this economy. Isn't it funny, though, that so much of the corporate world is based on that idea? Yeah, cover your ass. Don't make mistakes. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I, I had um, the CFO of one of the companies I worked with about 10 years ago. We were hiring a marketing director. And in the interview, he said, look, I don't mind you experimenting, but I'd rather you didn't make mistakes. And what? Of course you're going to make mistakes. Marketing isn't an exact science. It certainly wasn't. You can be a lot more accurate now. 
I mean, there's a whole branch of mathematics called irrational mathematics that's just evolving now. And it describes how you perceive the world and as a result, how you behave and act, which I might think is crazy. But to you, it's perfectly rational and vice versa. And because it makes sense to you, it can actually be measured. It can be tracked um, and you can create algorithms around it so you can start creating predictive models. Now, that wasn't available 10 years ago. It wasn't even available three years ago. It is now. Um, Mm -hmm. But the whole idea that you can go out there and make mistakes and learn iteratively, and this is, again, I think one of the big problems that I see is that so many people expect you to get it right. And um, what they're not uh, doing, and this is why I think we have a massive competitive disadvantage with the Chinese and the Japanese, because these are companies that have 100-year plans, and we're operating on quarterly reporting, and Mm. you live or die by one or two good quarters or bad quarters. Whereas these guys, and I I can't remember who it was was being interviewed, was a very senior Chinese official. And and he was asked, well, what's the, and bear in mind, this was in uh, the early 2000s. He said, well, what was the impact of the Second World War on China? Not sure yet. (laughs) I mean, we really have to think about over the next 30, 40 years, I'm willing to put my head on the block here. And who knows, I'll be wrong. I'll probably be dead before I'm found out one way or the other. But that long-term perspective is what will give the Chinese dominance. What we forget is that 3,000 years ago, China had an empire of a billion people. Yeah, Matsushita has a 200-year plan. Yeah. so Different levels of trust, isn't it? uh, Absolutely. So we've got to wrap up, sadly, because I could uh, chat to you for hours. Maybe we'll get to chapter two next time. Um, (laughs) So if we're looking at the future, um, what are the scenarios that you see coming down the pipe? Well... Start with the very personal. The three macro trends we've just talked about, in my biased opinion, represent a blueprint for leadership in 2021 and beyond. You talk about how can we be vulnerable? How can we put ourselves in harm's way? How can we be unscripted? That combination of seeking control, our people are seeking control. They want to have visibility of their outcomes. We want to push control back into their hands so there's no surprises. Second is raw. How can we communicate in in an unscripted, in-process, in-context manner to our internal people and heroic credibility? Can we, in fact, put together an absolutely compelling vision of the future that aligns with their values? Each one of these three trends is important in and of themselves. Each one should be isolated. Each one can be workshopped against sales plans, marketing plans, leadership development plans, you name it. But the real Interest comes when we look at it as a holistic system. And we say the three of these things together in a cycle creates a blueprint or a playbook for management going forward, building credibility, building trust, winning back customers in, as the book title describes, a digitally distracted world. Now, let's look further out. Let's look at the at the macro picture. Every possible scenario planning worst case scenario, uh, all happened in 2020. My personal fear is that we're going to look back on 2020 in six months and remember it fondly as the good old days. 
I think every major shift in consumer sentiment is going to happen infinitely faster than we're hoping. We're seeing a, a uh, tectonic shift in the U.S. right now. I don't know exactly where the chips are going to fall here. In the technology world, we've instantly gone to a hybrid working environment. And depending on how fast some of us return to work, we're never going to all be back in the office at the same time again. Because we have all of a sudden discovered that 90% of the meetings that we attend are irrelevant. And of course, the uh, cynical subscript uh, also tells us that 90% of the people are probably irrelevant too. Sorry to articulate the point, but it's true. Isn't it funny how the pandemic showed us that we could, in fact, take the worst elements of office culture and export them to the home? <laughs> back to back Zoom meetings went, you know, we had this wonderful opportunity to break the rules and say, you're going to be working at home. I want you to be spending a tremendous amount of your time doing the work we do alone, the deep thinking, the hard work, as we were just mentioned. Yeah. And then you can surface it, we can, we, we, and it can become the work we do together. From a work standpoint, from a business standpoint, again, it's some, somewhat of a, of, of, of a micro level. We have to say that is the biggest opportunity for business this cultural shift that's happened. Even if we return to a hybrid environment where 50% of the people are in the office at any given time, when you're not in the office, the last thing I would want to do as a manager of human effort would be to suck you in to office culture. Take advantage of the time that you're home. Take advantage of the time that you don't have someone popping their head in your office talking about the weekend. You actually have the opportunity to do the hard work when you're not constantly distracted. So that, I think, is a, is a huge opportunity. The scenarios around how we react to people, how we react to technology, how we react to office culture, how we react to the world in the, in the sense of pandemic, travel, et cetera, I think all of those things are in play right now. And that's what makes this a fascinating topic to study. I think what this pandemic is going to do, I've said it a few times on the podcast, is it's a catalyst for the next renaissance. And one of the areas I'm really very, very excited about, and th there is a technology out there that was developed by a guy called Professor Eddie Oben called Q, Q-U-B-E. He's definitely someone you should interview. And for the last 17 years, he's been creating a, a digital supernormal environment where different cultures, different people, non-English speakers, introverts can all collaborate using technology as an enabler and working in parallel. And I think what's going to be really fascinating is because you know, Zoom's been a godsend and they and other platforms have made this pandemic great for people like me and many of us have been able to get an awful lot of work done because we can do this. But it's very two-dimensional and it's not really enhancing what we do. It's just transposing. And I think what's going to be really interesting is these conditions will catalyze people into thinking, how can we do what we did, but so much better and get rid of the crap and really bring together all these unified technologies 
in such a way that we can get much more work done, be more productive, and spend more time on the heavy lifting of thinking, uh, on deep thought, so we can bring way more value. And that's the thing that I'm most excited about. I'm really curious to see. I'll I'll put you and Eddie uh, in touch with one another because I think you'll really hit it off. He's mad as a brush. Stephen, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. Mm Um, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I have to be honest, it's a bit of a head scratcher given the fact that the book I just wrote, Winning Back Trust, Credibility, and Customers in a Digitally Distracted World, the degree of digital distraction out there right now. I mean, think of it this way. I wrote a book and it 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 left the warehouse in the middle of a pandemic on the back end of national riots, and just as <laughs> a U.S. election happened that dwarfed the other two. Talk about digital distraction. It's not just a, a function of distraction, but the entire world changed in terms of how one does what one does. Yeah. Here we are having a, a, a purely digital interaction here on screen. There are no keynotes anymore to speak of some digital keynote, there's some online, there's some, you know, but it's not the same thing. Getting people's attention right now is hard, not just because, gee, did the, is the offer right for them? It's they're watching the news too. They're looking at all of the current events happening. They're worrying about the impact of the pandemic because their kids are not in school. They're in the next room, hopefully online, doing what they're supposed to be doing. People are exceptionally distracted right now. And even though you know all of this work has gone into understanding this and how do we achieve this and what are the bigger ideas, every time we come up with insight to address this, it's, it's an arms race. We just discover, we look up and the wall is five bricks higher now. So. That's the eternal struggle right now, reaching people, getting their attention, getting them to focus for a minute and realizing that we're not selling bags of Doritos here. We actually have to get their attention later again, and then we have to get them to introduce us to someone else, and then we have to get their attention. It's a never-ending arms race of attention right now. I think that whilst it isn't a panacea, what I am seeing is those individuals and those organizations that are super niching and the, what they're, the people who are saying no to more and they're refining. Jane McBain talks about this and you, you're seeing companies experience hyper growth uh, through doing this. It's no longer good enough to be the managed service provider in healthcare. You now need to be the managed service provider for walk-in clinics of up to 50 doctors in Southeast London. And um, that way you can capture people's attention because you're relevant, you're timely, you understand, you can understand them. But I think it's the generalists that are really going to struggle to Mm -hmm. capture people's attention. So I've intentionally narrowed my focus and it's, you know, our business is going like wildfire at the moment because of that. And certainly, if anyone is struggling with what Stephen's talking about, then what you say no to matters a lot more than what you say yes to. Good insight. Thank you. I agree with you completely. 
so tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Stephen, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that you know he'd have probably have ignored? He certainly was. <sighs> if I look at the golden ticket there, if I'm going back and talking to the 23-year-old version of myself, I was living in a six-mat room in Tokyo at the time. I could open my window and look down on 10 lanes of traffic coming in from Chiba Prefecture. I think the first thing I would say would be, it's okay to take bigger risks when you're 23. Mm -hmm. It's not a time that you need to be extremely conservative. You know, careers are funny things and people don't understand that, particularly when they're 23. The tyranny of success takes its toll. Once you've been a C-level officer, it's not okay to move backwards. It's very hard. So take the risk early. Go ahead and try the thing and work with those partners who you trust and see if you can build something of your own earlier. And as time goes on, you know, I try, I do my best not to think in absolutes. It's not like then this will happen, then this will happen. It's you make a step like that and the following five options appear magically. And then you choose one of those five options and then five more options are going to appear magically. It's this infinite branching of decision tree options that, that unfold before you. That's number one. That's one thing I would tell myself. Another thing, if I, if I sort of advance the ball a little bit, I would say, look for people. Don't look for companies. It's career. Yeah. career advice there. I've seen this too many times. I've experienced it too many times. Don't get wound up in a sexy company. Don't get wound up in a sexy industry. Find the right person to work for. Mm -hmm. On that note, if you're going to pay attention to that bit of advice from Stephen, there is a fabulous book by Jack Trout and Al Reese called Horse Sense, uh, which is all about uh, identifying the who and tapping into uh, somebody who can then help you either as a mentor or as somebody who uh, you can help and serve their interests and they take you where, where they're going. And that can accelerate your pathway. And it's a very, very insightful book. So there you have it. Those are two pieces of advice I would most certainly give myself at the age of 23. And, and you're right, I would probably blissfully ignore myself. <laughs> Excellent. So what, what books or podcasts or videos significantly influencing you at the moment that you'd recommend others to pay attention? Truthfully, I mean, let's talk about books because I'm an author. My father was an author. I, that's, that's something I feel strongly about. The books that have influenced me the most in this kind of part of my life, I would say, first and foremost, Influence Science and Practice by Bob Cialdini. That I've given more copies of that book away than I could probably lift at this point. Tremendous framework. It served me well. I've applied it in business and I've made a lot of money doing it. And you can't say that about too many books. Yep. If you can actually drill those principles into an outbound marketing campaign and see the results tangibly, that's a living case study of what works. That's a good one. My friend, uh, Steve Feinberg, who is someone you might want to interview? He's an interesting cat has worked with some of the, the best and the brightest in Silicon Valley and is now uh, just relocated to Bend, Oregon, along with every other Northern Californian, uh, wrote a book called The Advantage Makers. 
where he talks about the psychological principles of of organizational success. That's hugely important. As a manager of people, execution by Bossidi and Charan is the best book I've ever read about how to manage people and how to conduct yourself as a manager in a modern enterprise. It's a couple of years old now, but it's a fantastic read. It's a fantastic book. There's a lot of truth in it. Those would be three that I would knock down right up front. There's plenty of others, both in, in the business world and, and outside, that I would throw into the pile casually. Anything by Paco Underhill, if you're in the retail business, Why We Buy is a spectacular book. I can keep going. But you know, I find that there are a couple of big ideas that appear at any given time. And those are kind of foundational pillars that I've uh, that I've used very successfully myself. Two that I would strongly recommend: "Outwitting the Devil" by Napoleon Hill, and given what Stephen was advising earlier, is a, a really good read in terms of getting out of your own way. And one I very recently came across is called "The Crowd: A Study of the Popular Mind" by Gustave Le Bon. And I think it was written in the 1930s. Mm. And it looks at how demagogues and uh, how uh, crowds are driven. And it's a fascinating insight into crowd psychology. Uh, Mm -hmm. Really worth a read. Excellent. Stephen, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. I'd love to have you back. Marcus, it was a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad we had a chance to go long copy this time. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, we're, we're in the midst of another raft of insight and research. And perhaps when that stuff hits the, hits the surface, we can, we can reconnect and talk about that. I'd love to. How can people get hold of you? Easiest way to find, I'm very findable. I'm active and engaged on LinkedIn, on Twitter. If you want to find me in the digital world, Denny Leinberger's strategy is more easily spelled dlstrategy.com. That'll take us uh, take you to our website. You can download some of the insights. You can misspell Denny. You can misspell Lineberger. You can misspell them both. But dlstrategy.com is an easy way to find us. And um, you know, take advantage of it. Download the last raft of insights, and hopefully, you'll find it very useful. <laughs> Excellent, Stephen. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor Podcast. If you found this insightful, useful, challenging, then please do like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with either myself or Stephen, then feel free to do so. You can email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone else who would be, then please connect us. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.